everybody. There's a lot of concern today about the situation of the church, particularly in Western society. I really encourage you to listen to this teaching by Dr. Brian Stiller. Brian Stiller is the global ambassador for the WEF, representing about 600 million Christians around the world. He recently gave a very, very encouraging talk on what is happening with the global church. So I would really encourage you to listen to Brian. I have listened to it two or three times, and I'm very encouraged every time I listen. So welcome, Dr. Brian Stiller. Uh, good morning, and thank you. How many we were part of a world assembly we did here in Abbotsford in 1997? Thank you. One, two, two, three. And the rest of you have gone home to glory. It was an interesting, uh, I was serving the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada at the time, although I was doing a dual present unit, the Kindale had gone bankrupt, and so I was engaging in that and helping it reconstruct it. But the world body, this World Evangelical Alliance, it was called World Evangelical Fellowship then, wanted to do a their, their general assembly, which is every five years. And I was on the executive, and I said, why don't we do it in Canada? As we thought about it, we realized the enormous cost of hotels and conference centers, and we thought, why don't we do something in the Vancouver area and put the delegates, we had, I don't know, six, seven hundred delegates, put them in people's homes. It'll give them a taste of Canada. It'll give people in their homes an opportunity to talk to these international people. We can go to a church and hopefully they'll give it to us free. We'll save all money. And, and then, and there's nothing like um, Mennonite buffet dinner. So we had it here in 97. And our people still remember the great, the best assembly we've had in our, and we're 175 years of age. So to the degree that we can remember, we consider Abbotsford in 1997 to be the very best general assembly we've ever had. And you guys really work. So this is, it's been a long time. That's, that's 25 years. That's a quarter century. That's as old as you are, Garth. Well, not quite. Thank you for this opportunity of being here. Um, I spend most, most of my time speaking at overseas, and so my work here in Canada is periodic, and to be here at the prayer breakfast and to be with you here, my friends here in Abbotsford, is just a joy. For you see, I too was raised in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hometown, isn't it? Well, in this 90th anniversary, it might surprise you, that was not the year the church began. That's a little humor, folks, very good. Let me take you to when it began. My time to with you today is not to do an exegesis of a passage. Your pastors can do me on that. My interest is helping us think about the world, the church, where we are as a congregation, as an individual, within the broader sphere of the church today. As I was singing with you these wonderful songs, Thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, worship band, for doing this. I just remember that this has been going on in various ways for 2,000 years. I've been, I'll be, a couple of weeks, I'll be back in Ukraine. It'll be my fourth time this year in Ukraine. And if I engage with the various Orthodox and Catholic churches from that region, then, of course, 
And in Ukraine, you know, there are 13,000 evangelical churches. It's had an enormous growth since 1991 when the USSR fell. But the varying kind of forms of worship, the Orthodox, they, they love their icons. Those are not idols, by the way. Icons are, are very deep in their worship experience. I go back to um, the conversion in Kiev in about 1998 of the leader of the Kievan Rush country, which has included Russia and Ukraine. He had, he had, I think, five or six hundred wives. You talk about fatigue. Um, when he was baptized, history records a shocking change in his life because he was truly born again. So when I look for the church, and as I travel through Africa, Asia, Latin America, wherever, I know that this morning today, in your 90th anniversary, you are part, and I am part with you, of this enormous tradition of faith and worship through 2,000 years. Again, this way, as Luke wrote to his benefactor, Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions of the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and made many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gifts my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this kingdom at this time about to restore the kingdom to Israel? We always want to know what he's going to do, don't we? He said, it's not free. None of your business. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After this, he's taken up before the rise, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. And that's when it began. That was the introduction of this service. We have 2,000 years of history and experience, but that's who we are. We can go back those 2,000 years. But in living in Canada, we tend to believe what the papers say, which are, which are accurate, by the way, so like it, that faith is diminishing in our country, at least as defined by church attendance or what people affirm or don't affirm. And so when you look at those numbers overall, there's a slight decline. It's not a huge decline, but there is a decline. And the, the, the way in which our general culture dismisses or ignores who we are as a follower of Jesus, it just doesn't count as much as it used to, sometimes disparaged, but most often dismissed. You and I can come to a collective assumption that this is true worldwide. What I'd like to do is point something out to you and then tell you why I think it happened. In 1960, that was the year I met my wife, Lily. Never thought about that. In Saskatoon, 1960, 
there were 90 million evangelicals in the world. So 1960, that's what? 62 years ago. In 62 years, that 90 million has grown to 650 million. In no period of history with any religious group has there been that rapid growth. In Africa, in 1910, and that was when they had the, the first missionary conference. It was held in Edinburgh. And that's the first missionary conference uh, among all Christians that has been held uh, and ever been held, a world conference. In 1910, they, at that point, they, there were 8 million Af Christians in Africa. And they predicted that by the turn of the century, sub-Saharan African would be totally Islamic. But do you realize that in today, Christian-wise in Africa, we have gone from 8 million in 1900 to 640 million today? In 1949, when Mao Zedong took over with his Communist Party and threw out the Kuomintang, there were about 700,000 Christians in China. Today, and it's a little difficult, very difficult to get on the exact assessment, but it's somewhere between 90 and 140 million. Specifically within the evangelical community of which we are a part, the larger Protestant evangelical community, in Latin America in 1900, there were 50,000. Today, there's 100 million in Latin America. You go to the small countries. You go to Nepal. In 1970, there were seven families. Today, there's about 1.7 million. Been to Mongolia, very interesting, a small population, huge territory. In 1990, there were five. Today, there's closer to 100,000. Of course, in the Middle East, you have an enormous migration of Christians out of the Middle East, especially since the Kuwait War, the Iraqi, Afghanistan, those wars and those conflicts, uh, and the increased hostility between the Shia and, and the Sunni within Iraq, there's been an enormous migration of Christians out from there. Today in Iran, it's impossible to get numbers. I hear some numbers speculated. I just don't trust them. But there is a huge number of people who, through a variety of ways, are coming to faith in Christ, not the least of which are dreams and visions, which are so consistent with the Mideast mind and so acceptable as a way of being informed. Why? In an age where we assume that the message of Christ is less and less accepted, especially in our Western world, what has happened? Now, I'm going to give you some stats and some analysis today, but here's, here's my objective. Here's what I'd like to do. You as a congregation, you as an individual, you as a family, you have your own priorities and interests, inclinations, My interest is how the Spirit speaks to you and me today. As you listen to this, ask yourself, what does it mean to me? Here, in this world, in this year, in this... What might the Spirit be saying to me through this? I have no... I'm not driving a particular point. I'm simply casting before you these ideas trying to understand what the Spirit has been doing over the last 90 years with you, the last century in the community we called evangelicals, what's been going on, and where might the Spirit inform or inspire or lead you in this? Because everything we have sung about this morning has been, Lord, I put, before, I put myself before you. I want to hear your voice. And then I'm going to end with a story that, just to kind of make that point. 
11 years ago, I became global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. Now, in the, wor in the, in the world today, there are 2.4 billion Christians. 1.2 billion, or half, are Roman Catholic. 500 million are part of the World Council of Churches. And within that 500 million, there are 300 million Orthodox. There are about 13 Orthodox churches. You, you, uh, your great Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, so forth. There's about, there's about 13 of those groups, and they number 300 million, and they're part of that 500 billion. So you've got 2.4 billion, 1.2 half are, are, are Catholic Catholics, 500 million are mainline Protestants and Orthodox, and 650 million are evangelicals. So within this world of 2.4, about 25% are evangelicals. 175 years ago, the ministry that the organization that I represent was born out of England. European, North American, UK people coming out of the, 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 the Wilberforce and the, the post-slavery period, concerns about child labor and the, the Ottoman uh, persecution of Christians in Eastern Europe, and a desire among church leaders to have fellowship, the WEA was born. And so I served that body. We have 143 countries that have national alliances. In Canada, it's the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. So this gloomy body, we have offices in New York, UN, Bonn, and Geneva on human rights and persecution and on sustainable issues of climate change and so forth. So we have a number of, of various departments that are involved in various aspects globally. So my role is the, I, I'm 80 years of age this year, so I'm, an, I'm the old white-haired man that bumps around the world encouraging younger leaders, and I tend to be in different countries maybe once, once a month, although COVID kind of changed that for a bit. As I began to move about the world and recognize what was going on globally, I asked myself the question, what has happened over the last few years? Let me suggest three drivers that have caused this acceleration of faith. And then two shapers that are remolding the church and its engagement. The three drivers, the things that have driven the church these last number of years is, first of all, what I would call the age of the spirit. Now, it's, it was surprising to me, and I know it'll be surprising to you, that the understanding of the Holy Spirit, who he is, his empowerment, his anointing and gifting in people's lives, this is a fairly recent understanding of the church. When you come to the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century, the Spirit was really shadowed by the Father and the Son. So, back when the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and so forth, and those were developed, it was all about the humanity and the divinity of the Son. The Spirit is always recognized and named. But through the, through the 1900 years of church history, there was little Spirit-led revivals or movement. You'd have the occasional ones, the Moravians, the, 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 the Wesleyans, and so forth. But there was little occasion where there was a real consciousness of the Spirit, who he is, what he does, how he empowers. Until the Pentecostal movement of the early 20th century broke out. It created all kinds of havoc, but what it did, it eventually opened us to understanding the Spirit. It's interesting. I would just my, when I finished high school in Saskatoon, I went to Central Pentecostal College. Our theology text was by Henry C. Thiessen. When I went back to, and that was our theology book for Pentecostals. Can you imagine? I went back and I looked at the theology text that was ours for three years of Pentecostal Bible College, and Thiessen had hardly anything in there about the Spirit. Why? Because the church collectively up until the early part of the 20th century, and it didn't break through until theologies began to emerge in, this, in the 70s and 80s, we had a very modest understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Pentecostal movement, it changed us all. 
No, it created all kinds of backlash because some crazy things went on. I said that. But also, there was a movement called cessationism. And cessationism was a historic kind of a Protestant notion, a Catholic and Orthodox lecture, but within the Protestant world, cessationism said that the gifts of the Spirit ceased in the 4th or 5th century when the, when the Bible canon was finally agreed on. And the, the cessationist said, we no longer need the gifts of the Holy Spirit because now we have the canon of the Bible. And so when the spirit movement broke out in the early part of the 20th century, there was not only a backlash against the, the undue emotion that seemed to be accompanying this and some of the, the theology that accompanied it, but overall this pushback by the Protestant church saying, we no longer need the gifts of the spirit. And so you have this cleavage, this divide that's, that, 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 that comes within the evangelical church. Mennonites and Pentecostals. I was raised in Saskatoon, and I dated some of these Mennonite girls and they parents of the wicked because I was Pentecostal. I'd forgotten about that, but it's true. But then it's interesting how the Spirit works. Who did the Spirit use to begin to bridge this divide? Episcopalians and Catholics. It's amazing who God is. So you have in the 60s and 70s what's called the charismatic movement that breaks out among the Episcopalian and Catholics. It starts in Van Nuys, California. It goes over. I was in Montreal with Youth for Christ at the time in, the, in, the, in 67, 68, and it broke out there. The charismatics, Catholics, they had this huge, huge meetings in the, in the Montreal Forum. What was going on? This breakthrough of the Spirit to give a new awareness said this. The gifts didn't cease in the fourth century. The issues of glossolalia of speaking in tongues, which became very much a divisive factor. They said, those gifts are also for today, but that gift is not synonymous with the filling of the Spirit. You don't have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit. But the gifts are still in operatives today. And gradually as that idea began to break across our Protestant and Catholic world, this divide was lessened because those of non-evangelical communities all of a sudden understood a new the new the, the the person and the work and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, which for us all had been opaque, had been shadowed for nineteen hundred years, apart from the occasional breakthrough. Now, this was the prime driver because what it did was this. I mean, we could go on and talk about it, and maybe maybe over lunch you could you have some further questions. But what it did was this. You see, within the church, and as Mennonites, you understand this because of the, the horrific time you went through post-Reformation. The church operated on the basis of status within the Orthodox and Catholic, on the basis of status. And so, at your level, as the congregant, you come to me as the priest who offers you the sacraments for salvation. But understand where I, as the priest, am. I'm a little higher than you because I've been anointed by the Spirit to do this. You haven't been. But what this new understanding of the Spirit in the 20th century did, it took me down from here and it brought you up to here. All of a sudden, you are legitimately an agent of the Spirit for transformation, for whatever, as I, an ordained priest. It truly introduced the priesthood of every believer. And as you understood that, all of a sudden you recognized that God could gift you for service, for witness. When your neighbor's child is ill, 
You don't have to call for me because the Spirit has anointed you. You can go next door and you can lay hands and pray the gift of healing. And what this did globally, it sparked an understanding of who I am as a child of God, that the Spirit indwells us all without respect to ordination or status. Then what it did, it sparked the initiative of ideas and ministries. Because no longer did I have to go to the Vatican or to Steinbeck or wherever our headquarters was to get permission. I must move on. Yeah, I really must. So there's the first driver. The second driver was the power of the written word. Now I've got numbers on stats and how the church exploded in the middle in the in the you know, forty-seven. I think you have the development of Wycliffe Bible translators, and that be, that that begins the whole movement. But here's with the power of this, which which I think you'll find intriguing, is this: you may have a Bible that says the Holy Scriptures, or the Holy Bible, or a Bible isn't holy. Only Jesus is. However, the Quran, for a Muslim, that's holy, especially and holy in the original uh, text. Now, put this up. What is holy for them is the Quran. What is holy for us is Jesus. The Bible is instructive, inspired, the rule of faith. But it is instructive of Jesus, the Holy One. In Islam, the Quran is ultimately holy. You can't change that killing. With us, we can put the Bible into any language we want. Why? Because as Jesus was incarnate, Jesus came into the world as a human. Fully human, fully divine, but it all points touched as 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 we are. All it all points tempted like as we are, very much human, totally human. As Jesus was incarnate into our world, so the Bible is incarnate in the world. She, what language did they use when they wrote the New Testament? Koine Greek. Public marketplace Greek. You know, like, well, how you doing, Greek? Interesting. The Old Testament written Hebrew before Christ, hundreds of years before Christ, they translated into Greek called the Septuagint version. So for us, it doesn't matter what language it's in. There's nothing sacred about the Bible text. It's not sacred or holy. It's inspired. So the translation could go anywhere. And when that translation, when we, it's always been translated to particular languages, Tyndale did it, uh, was the first one that did it in contemporary English back in the early, in the early 1500s. But when, when Wycliffe took off in, the, in 1947, and then the various uh, means of translation increased, what it did, it spread across the world, the language into your tongue. No, my, my grandparents came from Sweden, settled just north of Brandon, a little town called Minidosa, Manitoba. And when my father heard the text in Swedish, there was a smile that broke out on his face. The same for you and your, whatever your original language is, lower, higher, medium, German, whatever it is. <laughs> I'll be with Herb Buller this week in the Winnipeg, and he and he, he and Erna will use low German, then laugh at me because I can understand some of the words because some of the words sound like they mean, <laughs> you know, that's like. But when the language moved across the world, into, not only into your language, but into your tribal dialect, something exploded. 
there was a synthesis of an understanding of the Spirit and how the Spirit now lives in me and I am a temple of the Spirit and I can be empowered by the Spirit to do His work. That linked with a new understanding of the Scripture and you and I understand the power of the Scripture in, in triggering life. This had an enormous impact. The first driver is the Holy Spirit. The second driver is, 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 is Bible translation. And the third driver is indigenous leadership. When you look at the world outside of Europe, of course, it was colonized by, by Europeans. But by the middle of the 20th century, colonization had either dropped off or had been decreased. And mission agencies were slowly moving back to putting we're moving towards putting native indigenous people into leadership. Amazing. Took us so long, except in China, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Can you imagine what happens in your tribe when you have somebody who looks like you, who understands the nuances of our tribal dialect? Who can sit down and eat the same meals without throwing up. <laughs> when the leadership of the church was taken over by in, the indigenous, I think it became a perfect storm over the last 60 years. An understanding of the spirit, the pervasiveness of, this, of the scriptures, and the taking over of leadership by the indigenous leaders. Let me go back to China. There was an interesting movement towards China, especially out of the UK in the latter part of the 1800s. But there were a couple of missiologists in England who were worried that there was going to be an English church in China. And so they developed a missiological idea called three self. The church should be self-propagating, self-managed, and self-funded. And so the missions in the 20th century in China during the revolutionary period was built around indigenous leaders funded by themselves and taught by themselves, propagated by themselves. Well, in 49, when Mao Zedong came in and threw out the Kuomintang, in 52, he threw out all the missionaries. And of course, we knew the church in China would die. It took, we heard some rumblings, but it really took until about 78, when Mao died, for the window to be slightly open and to our delight and answer the show, we saw five dynamic church. Why? Because in 52, when Mao threw out the missionaries, he said, we're going to institute this new idea called three selves. Your church cannot be run by foreigners. It cannot be financed by foreigners. It's got to be a look. The church in China had been doing it for 50 years. And so when the West, when, we, when it was shut down from the rest of the world, it already had. So it went from 700,049. And when it opened in the late 70s, there were millions of people across the earth. So we've had those three factors, indigenous leadership, church Bible translation, and the work of the spirit. It has exploded the church. But there are two other factors that are reshaping the church even as I speak. The first is what I would call a re-engagement in the public square. Public square simply means society or society, social structures around us, media, education, uh, health, those public structures that serve us. Now, those of you that are closer to my age, you'll remember that we believed that we should come up from among them and not touch the, and touch not the evil thing, saith the Lord. Which meant, what we do, we'll get people ready for eternity because it's those Protestant liberals that are dealing with social problems. So we'll let them deal with that and we'll deal with the real issue. 
And so we had this division, a withdrawal from society. But then we get into the, the 60s, the revolutionary 60s, into the 70s. And all of a sudden we realize that the assumption we had that those who ran society would basically carry it on the basis of the biblical vision and historic, our historical uh, vision that we have had in our country for years. They would affirm the biblical values and ethics within society. And we assumed they would do it. But all of a sudden, we woke up one day in the 70s and 80s, and it wasn't true. Because when we're absent, our concerns aren't voiced. And we realized a flaw in our theology. And the flaw was this, that we had divided part of society from the role of the church or from the presence of the people of God. This is the world. This is the kingdom. Until one day we understood that all of life is the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. As, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a Dutch prime minister once said, there's not no one square inch of this world. God doesn't say, that's mine. All of life is the Lord's. And so we have been working to re-engage one of the one of the 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 mentors and friends to me as I was engaged in this new understanding back in the in the early eighties when I when I developed the Evangelical Fellowship was my dear friend and Minister of Health Jay Gap. We worked closely to understand what is the Lord calling the people of God to do and to deal with in this public order. Now, our mission and enterprise when it would go to Africa and Latin America and Asia, it took this old notion of separating God's people from the worlds. So worldliness was being in the world. And when we went overseas, we taught them that the church should have nothing to do with society. The social, political, economic, health issues, and now ecological issues are things that we separate out because we just get people ready for eternity. That was the, the structure that went with mission. But then all of a sudden you have two factors. One, you have an explosive growth of the church so that within a nation you have a large percentage that are believers. And out of that, you will have leadership that will rise in the various social political constructs of their nation. And they're asking the question, given the old missionary ideal, we shouldn't be here as Christians. But then they are there as Christians. So what do they do? There was a gradual recognition that engagement with public life was critical. If that has gone on in many places, some critically too far, but the desire and the impulse to be the people of God within all of life is a new part of our engagement. Now, on the other side, you have Christians that are living in, 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 in small, minor, small and oppressed minorities. And they struggle. Egypt comes to mind. Iran is another place. Various places where you are oppressed as a small group. That's where being members in a large body like the World Evangelical Alliance, time after time, I have found to be of enormous help. Because on the ground, for example, in, in, in Lahore, in Pakistan, I've become friend with the imam of the, I think it's the largest uh, um, um, uh, Muslim uh, mosque in the world. And he and I have, through various places, have become friends. And so when I go to the Lord, I spend time with him. And I bring in my evangelical community. And we sit and talk about the issues of blasphemy laws and, and the killings of Christians in Pakistan and what we can do together. All of a sudden, they find within that Pakistan world, being an evangelical and part of this larger body that builds relationship with, with, with an imam, it can change what's going on on the ground. So re-engagement has become a no shaping factor with our world. It's problematic. 
you and I know that today within this North American world, there is some, and I'm sure it happens here within families and communities, that there is a division on the, given the political divide. And sometimes the word evangelical is used for political purposes, and that creates all kinds of problems. But nevertheless, the desire to engage as a follower of Jesus, as salt and light, as sometimes we chip over that and we, we take it too far and we, and we push too much salt on the food for other people and we become repugnant. Or we don't dim our lights when we're driving down the road and to become a light, we become a glaring in their eye and we drive them into the ditch. So be careful what I mean. if you're going to be insulted, like, just, you know, do it Jesus' way. The point is, that's changing our church and our place in the world. The second is an understanding of the holistic nature of the gospel. Again, our predisposition was to getting people saved, ready for eternity. But then we realized it's really hard to speak to a person about Jesus when they're dying of hunger. And all of a sudden, we have come to realize how the gospel speaks to the holistic issues. So the, the, the environment, which can create all kinds of tensions and debates with it, yet on the larger scale, we understand that there is a change going on, and we as Christians, we come to this planet as the children of God, dealing with the planet of God, and we ask, what should we do? And so the... For example, our work in Geneva with human rights, we now have status with the UN because they simply recognize when you represent 650 million people, they want to know what you're thinking. They want to know what your problems are, what the issues are, and they want our help in dealing with, with the issues of, of human rights and, and violation of human rights and, and persecution. So today we have new growth, new understanding, and new issues. There's a rising generation of young people, and it's just wonderful to see those children. At least they know you're not dead. <laughs> what to be here and the, the life and the energy of this congregation. And you're living in the middle of that. Now I know I'm at the I'm at the kind of the twilight end of life. But I, I still am living it at because I can talk to younger people and I can pray for them and I can engage. What you do here really matters to the worries. You weren't South Abbotsford as if there's some little baga baga in the world that doesn't matter. So as we look at that world, a changing church, you and I are in the middle of the vibrancy of it. It's wonderful. It's exciting. We look at the church and it's changed, and we see in some ways they're, they're, people are tripping over themselves. They're, they use, sometimes they use the gospel to try and force the country to serve us and make it easier for us to serve Jesus here. So we want the, rule, the, the rules and policies and, and, and enacted by the government to make, to, so it serves us. And so we, we, we try to Christianize the nation by pushing on the nation our views, our ethics, our values for our own personal well-being. I realize there are problems at stake in what's going on. As our community has emerged from being a very, I know what it's like to be a Pentecostal in the 40s and 50s in Saskatoon. Man, I, we were on the roof side of the church. We were the Holy Rollers. I went to a church called the Jesus Saves Corner right across from Karen's Field on Avenue A. When people knew that my father was a Pentecostal pastor, I knew what was going on in their mind. So I just played a football harder and beat them. But we're living in a different age. Opportunities are just... So many young people, as you look at your life, you're gifting. Oh, set your, set your horizons higher. He'll surprise you. Eleven years ago, I took on this role. I'll tell the long story. Here's the short story. 
My first trip overseas, I ended up in Mogadishu, Somalia. The most broken state in the world. When I ended up in the Mogadishu airport, it's interesting when you have two pink-faced guys in an African airport, how you find each other. This guy was a war photojournalist from Paris. We got talking. What had happened is that World Vision had been thrown out of Somalia and they were feeding a half million kids a day. I was there with the African director of the Evangelical Alliances of Africa. And we decided to go there to see if we could somehow, because the, the Al-Shabaab, which is the Al-Qaeda group, had just been pushed out of Mogadishu. So we thought maybe there's a way of bringing ministry back into Mogadishu to help on the humanitarian side. So that's why I was there. This photojournalist said, uh, after we got talking, he said, who's looking after you? Well, I said, uh, we're going to get to that. He used some very colorful language, ending with idiot. He said, don't leave this airport. I don't know. What I didn't realize is six months before, a gal from Red Deer had been captured by the Al-Shabaab and she was there for seven years. He said, don't leave the airport. Well, the immigration officer, an hour and a half later, he came to the same conclusion. He said, wait here. For a couple hours, we waited and finally, this Somalian walked in, short man. The immigration officer says, you go with him. He was a warlord. He was a good warlord at that point. He had his own army and he had a hotel. And so for a certain sum, we paid for protection and for location and for church or hotel. It was in downtown Mogadishu. Went outside and the air was a, a small truck with five guys with AK-47s with a driver and an aide to come. And we were looked after as we went around the various camps, talked to the various people. We stayed in this hotel and it was surrounded by his army. And there was an outdoor court and it was, it was, it was, uh, during their special religious holiday where they don't eat. And he was, they were waiting right next door was the government building and a lot of, 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 of former, some of former Somalians had come back to try and reconstitute the government. And so they were all sitting around waiting for sunset so they could eat. Finally, a man turned to me and he said, you Canadians are all cowards. I was kind of surprised. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, for years you come to Nairobi, but you're the first Canadian I'd seen here in years in Mogadishu. Why have you come? Silence. About 30 or 40 of the government officials sitting around drinking their tea, waiting for sunset. And I had a perfect opportunity to say, you guys have pretty bad reputation. We've come because we think there's good reason for your people to live. And here's why I come. Here's who Jesus is and why he matters and what he calls us to. Eventually we left. We were going out. And I was going through the security. There was a young man standing there. And he, I looked at his t-shirt and I thought, this kid can't speak English. He would never have that on his, on his shirt. In this most radical of Islamic fundamentalist countries. So I got to him and he finally, with his wand, he's working over me and I said, What's John 3.16? And in perfect English, he told me about how he had come to Christ. And people are listening, and I thought, this guy is, I mean, he's crazy. He's, 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 he's going to be in trouble. We eventually got out, and we came home, meeting with family, and my bro oldest brother said, Brian, what, what did you accomplish? I said, I have no idea. He said, oh, maybe you were there to encourage that younger guy in the airport as you left. I maybe. My wife, Philly, spoke up. I was just turning 70. So at that point, you know, you think you're thinking about uh, grandkids and ghosts. She said, no, I don't think that was the reason. 
I think it was a nudge of the spirit. The spirit was really testing Brian as to whether he would feel the nudge in response. And that became a life changer over this last decade. Now that sounds a bit melodramatic. I realize and I apologize, but that's the only, that's the best story I've got. But I keep asking myself that question. Today, am I feeling the nudge of the spirit? Voice. Feeling. Call it what you may. Because in my relationships with each other, across the fence, across the bed, <laughs> across the dining room table, across the political divide, this is his world. He has anointed and appointed and appointed you and I as the people of God to be the voice and the presence of God wherever we go. You know, I go back to Ukraine. I, I haven't cried so much in all my life. It's like, and working with, especially when it happened in February, working with refugees coming to the surrounding countries. Some of you have relatives there, you know what? And to see the people of God respond to crisis issues, it's, it, it challenges me. What's the nudge in my life today? So as we go from here, as you celebrate this new idea, friends, it's the beginning. It's the beginning. Mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, kids, students, young adults. Anointing, quipping has nothing to do with age. Feel the nudge. Hear the movement of our comfort zone. Test what he would have us do by faith. Because remember, faith is going beyond what I can do. Only what he helps me can it be. Lord Jesus, we offer our lives to you collectively and individually. Thank you for the witness of this church these 90 years. What wonderful presence in this in this And for the lives it nurtures and shapes and mobilizes as they move on into life. Lord Jesus, may we feel the nudge. May we hear the whisper. We may, may we feel that, that breeze that just kind of touches us in the most surprising times. Moving us to think thoughts we haven't thought before or do things we haven't done before. We know you are with us. You're behind us, in front of us. This is the church that for 2,000 years is listening to the voice of Jesus, waiting for his return, but empowered by the Spirit. We give you thanks, Christ.